Um, This morning we're going to read from Nehemiah 10. Nehemiah 10, if you have your Bibles open, you can open there. We're going to jump there in a minute. But if, you are, uh, if, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, maybe here on Facebook, welcome to you or here in, uh, in person. Uh, we are waist deep in this sermon series called Courageous Leadership Uncertain Times. I thought we'd be talking about COVID, but it just keeps spinning and spinning, right? And um, we've been following the story of this man named Nehemiah as a reminder in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah's life pursuit was to rebuild this city, this hometown that had been torn apart. But his vision wasn't just to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, it was to restore God's people and faith back to him. So last week we ended with this image you might remember of Israel. They are gathered outside of this newly built, brand new city wall and gates of Jerusalem and they're looking for a new start themselves. And this revival sort of breaks out as God's word is read to the people and as they look out over this city in ruins, they realized for the first time that it was their sin that had caused such calamity. And so one by one, we learned last week, they begin confessing not only their sin, but the sins of all those who had walked before them. And they bring every bit of a broken piece of life from not only their past, but also their present, and they lay it before the Lord. And last Sunday, we talked about patterns and pathways. The importance of looking back on our own history because all of us walk some certain of trail of someone who has gone before us and as a result, we either bear the victory of that path or the absolute failure of that path. I was on a hike this week and um, uh, I got to this fork in the road. You could either turn left or you could go straight. You could turn left or you could go straight and it was clear as day to me that the main trail was straight ahead. It was my first time up on the mountain, and so I started that direction. Um, But my buddy, Ryan Marsh, was with me, and he had hiked this trail a dozen times before. He said, no, the trail is to the left. I said, well, wait a second. If the trail is to the left, why is that trail in front of me so wide and distinct? He said, it's because everyone goes that way. They hit a dead end. They turn around and come back and go the right way. We are a people, we learned last week, of patterns and pathways, and yet there is something restorative, that there is something liberating about bringing God all of that torn up past in confession to him. I once heard sin explained much like a log on a pond. A log can float on the surface for a long, long time, years really, but hidden below the surface, the wood eventually goes rotten and left unchecked every time that log becomes a sinking ship. So, so there's this, this new start, right? A new beginning, a, a clean slate. Sins confessed, rot dealt with, patterns acknowledged, pathways admitted. But this lingering question remains, and the, the question for us this morning is, how do you make a new pathway? If you've confessed all the pathways of your past, how do you now carve and blaze your own trail? And we we ended our time last week together with this. Look at this, Nehemiah 9.39 up on the screens. This is how we ended. Because of this, because of our past sin, God's people said, we now make a firm commitment in writing on this sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Nehemiah 9.38. This morning, we're going to find that with that one verse, 
there is now a shift from looking backwards to looking ahead. Hear this, if last week was about patterns and pathways, this week is about promises and priorities. Promises and priorities. Everyone tracking? So let's read, we're going to read Nehemiah 10 verses 28 to 39. Nehemiah 10, 28 to 39. Listen to this, the word of the Lord. So the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law as was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if any of the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people who have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it was written in the law. We obligate to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse." For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this is the word of God, and it endures forever. I want you to picture a scene for a minute with me, something like the Declaration of Independence. Everybody got that image in mind? Just before our lesson, uh, we skipped over all this multitude list of names, because you've heard me butcher names in the last two weeks, haven't you? These names of people who were gathered together to make promises like no one had seen in decades. First up, right before our passage, was Nehemiah. He was the leader of the pack. Followed by 22 named priests, then 17 Levites now followed behind him within 44 other representatives of God's people. Aren't you glad I spared you of all those names? The scriptures tell us that by this time, by the time the covenant was completely complete, every person who had the ability to understand the intent of their actions had now made a new commitment to the Lord. 
And if you were to summarize the scene, you would say it was a day of promise and priority. Promise and priority. Anyone remember the story, uh, Field of Dreams? Anybody remember that movie? Anybody? My family has deep roots in Iowa, and so this, this movie is like legend in our house. Um, look at this. This is a picture of Jen and I, right after we were married, uh, hanging out in the famous ball field uh, in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. If you haven't seen the movie, go watch it this afternoon. It is a classic Americana film, right? It's a Midwest baseball plot. But the entire movie is about priorities and promises. The main character, you'll remember, was Ray Kinsella. And Ray had like the perfect life. Stable income, acreage for miles, perfect crop, great job, beautiful family. One day he's out in the field, remember this? He's doing his thing and he hears this voice. Remember what it said? If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. And from that point forward, Ray's life is turned upside down. Because he gets this idea that if he builds a baseball diamond in his backyard, then the late shoeless Joe Jackson will come back and play ball again. And now this becomes Ray's obsession, right? His neighbors think he's crazy. His relationships fall apart. His friends think he's nuts. All of his time is now consumed by this. Every resource is now poured into this ministry. The bank wants to foreclose on his home. But none of that matters, right? Because for Ray, this is now the priority. He's willing to lose everything for this dream. Here's what I'm getting at. Um, In our lesson today, everything suddenly changes for God's people. We're not talking about somebody who heard a whisper in a cornfield. That's, That's Hollywood. That's fiction. No, Israel had encountered the active living word of God, right? And from that moment forward, all the priorities change. Look at this in verse 29. So we entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. See, this vision of a restored people on their knees before God now starts to come to life. And everything from this point forward changes. So from the ground up, Israel makes a promise in life to change three key aspects of their days. Three key aspects. This is what we're going to look at this morning. The first is they promise to reprioritize their relationships. The second, they make a promise with God to reprioritize their time. And finally, before the Lord, they promise to reprioritize the resources that God has given them. Reprioritizing relationships, time, and resources. That's what we're going to look at together this morning. So let's look at this first one, reprioritizing relationships. Look at how this shift in priority begins. Look at this in verse 30. It says this, we will no longer give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now that's kind of odd, right? Like if you think about it, that's where the recommitment of God's people begins. With who marries who. And you know, if you think about this, from our perspective today, it seems a bit draconian, doesn't it? Like, we live in a globalized society. Who are we to tell others who they can and can't marry? Love is love. 
Look at this from Ezra 9.1, though. It tells us the exact situation. Here's the problem. Look at this on the screens. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites had not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And so the issue is not that God's people married foreigners. The issue is that they were intermingling with those who worshipped abominations. Do you see that? I underlined it just for you. Israel had let their guard down so freely that they had now caved to an anything-goes sort of culture. And if you think about it, we can relate to that pressure, all of us, right? Every day I feel like I wake up and I realize just how fringe the church and its beliefs really are this day and age. The question is, will we stand firm in God's word or will we capitulate to the flavor of the day? See, so the entire purpose of marriage, the entire construct, the biblical idea was of a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant, that that two would become one, and in that unity, God would be glorified. But now God's people have decided to water down the faith entirely by marrying those who want nothing to do with their God. Don't miss the point here. This isn't about just about who marries who. This is about promises and priorities. It's really hard to stay committed to your faith when the relationships that you have formed in your life have nothing to do with your God. Let me just take a different angle for a minute. Just consider the concept of friendship. I think some relationships draw us nearer to God, right? I can sit down with someone in maybe just an hour and feel like they took me by the hand back to the Lord. Anybody have a friend like that? And some of my friendships, if I'm not careful, will lead me astray. Think about maybe like if you're in a conflict or in a quandary about something, we oftentimes will call for counsel, right? And I can call that friend who I know is going to hold me accountable and put me in check with maybe something like, well, Ryan, what does God's word say about that? Or I can call the friend who knows going to give me the answer, the exact answer I'm looking for, even if I'm dead wrong. The first thing God's people do, the first item of business is they reprioritize their relationships. That's not to say that we shouldn't hang out with those who are outside the faith or with those who have different values than us, but here's the point. Israel had now blended in with the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Ammonites so much that they had forgotten God's word altogether. The witness of their faith was gone. So think about this. We have seven days a week, 16 hours of daylight. I looked that up. Isn't that crazy? 16 hours of daylight here in Bozeman. With that time allotted, who do we need to lean into? And who might we need to lean away from? Which really leads me to the second point, which is Israel makes this promise then to reprioritize their time. You ever notice how obsessed we are with time? Oxford Dictionary has now declared the word time is the most frequently used noun in the English language. It's by that very word that our world orients itself. Just walk into a Barnes and Noble, even today, and look at the book titles. You'll see things like this, 30 days to a better life, seven days to a brand new you, the 60-minute marriage builder, one minute to healing, that's all we need, 30-minute meal book, 60 seconds with God, as if that's enough. 
We serve a, a God who handed us this creation of time. He created the entire concept of, of day and night. He created the reality of a beginning and an end. And for six days, God made the earth, every day something different, and then he rested. And as created beings, we are therefore by nature time-oriented. So here's a question, how do you prioritize it? See, it wasn't enough just for Israel to confess the sins of their past. They wanted to reorient their entire future to God. And if they were going to do that well, it had to begin with a reprioritization, not only of relationship, but a reorientation of time. Look at this in verse 31, again up on the screens. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, they said. Now, if you think about the Ten Commandments with me for a minute, I would argue that the Sabbath is the one command that God gives for us. For us. Mark 2.27, Jesus said, I made the Sabbath for man, not the man for Sabbath. And yet, for whatever reason, I feel like on this one we're slipping. That we don't quite take this one as seriously as the rest. Hear me out. Adultery? That ain't right. You with me? Stealing? That's a felony. Murder? You're going to prison. Honor the Sabbath? Nah. It's negotiable. The Hebrew word is Shabbat. It literally means to cease, to stop, to rest. And you know, oftentimes you'll hear in evangelical circles, well, no, Jesus is my Sabbath, so the, the day is no longer binding. But just consider this. What if the Sabbath was made for you? You know, Sabbath keeping for me has become the most difficult and yet most beautiful spiritual discipline in my own life because when I stop and I rest, I have to confess to God over and over again, Lord, you are in control, not me. The, the urge to check my email or to respond to that phone call or get to that unfinished project, it becomes a reminder in my life of Ryan's control. And in that moment of resting, you begin to realize again, Lord, this isn't my world, this is yours. See, otherwise, about six days in, and, and tell me if you, you agree here, but six days in, I start thinking, this is my life. And I start thinking, I've got a good handle on things, and I'm in control. But then this inconvenient thing called the Sabbath shows up. For our family, it's typically Fridays or Saturdays, where God reminds me, I've got this, not you. Go sit that one out. And when we take Sabbath seriously, we begin to find that our entire time throughout the week gets reoriented back to him. I love this quote by Corey Ten Boom. It said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. You know, it's not enough, again, that God's people confess how they've fallen away from him. They make this promise now to orient their time in such a way that he comes first again. Look at this quote from John Mark Comer. Some of you are in a men's Bible study reading this book right now. It's fantastic uh, book that gives you a lot of thinking points. He says, the solution to an over-busy life is not more time. It's to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. Promises and priorities. So it began with Israel's relationships. And then it continued with reorienting their time. And I saved the best for last. You're going to be so excited about this. God's people then returned this promise to reprioritize everything they have. 
Look at this in verse 32. They say, we also take on ourselves the obligations now to give a yearly third part of a shekel for service of the house of our God. You know, perhaps nowhere in life, perhaps nowhere is there more of a succinct diagnosis of our priorities than our wallets. Hear me out. Christ said where your treasure is there, your heart will be. It's why we have budgets. Spring Hill just went through their budgeting process. Budgets tell us priorities. It's the second leading cause for divorce in America. Money. The first is adultery. But really, thousands of marriages fall apart over money. Why? Because money tells a bigger story than just numbers and spreadsheets. Devin Sylvie was a young man, about as frugal as they come, and he had saved every dime throughout his childhood. One of his favorite hiding places for the cast was this large Mickey Mouse tumbler from an old Disneyland trip growing up. By the time he had reached college, he had over $6,500 in that mug. Think about that. He hid it up in the top corner of the kitchen cabinets where no one could see. No one in his family knew about this secret. Well, one day his mother got an itch for some spring cleaning. It just so happened after years of staring at that Mickey Mouse cup up in her cupboard, she figured her son had outgrown the thing. So she threw it in a box full of clutter and donated it to Goodwill. Goodwill never opened it up. They had no idea what was in it. And to this day, no one knows who ended up with the cash. It's kind of a metaphor for life. If we're honest, money comes and money goes. All of us, every one of us, one day will part with every possession and every treasure ever owned. I love how blunt Job is about this. Look at this. Job 121, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when that day comes, the question is not how much money we amassed for ourselves. The question is what did we do with it? How do we prioritize it? Were we intentional with it? And note this, Israel sees this concept as vital to their faith life. They promise not only to tithe, but to give their first fruits back to God. This is a significant moment, because to give your first fruits, that's to give your first paycheck. I think about our farmers. I was driving through the valley yesterday, making the first cut of the season, right? In the midst of a possible drought, can you imagine not knowing what's coming in the second and third round, but giving all of your first crop to the Lord. Reminds me of a story in Malachi 1.8. God's people bring him their livestock and worship. But instead of, of bringing them their absolute best, they literally handpicked all the blind and diseased animals as though God wouldn't notice. They kept the best for themselves and gave him the leftovers. God's response to them was, you wouldn't even give that to your governor. What are you doing giving that to me? No, if everything we have and everything we are is because of his grace and his mercy and his hand, then how can we not give back in his return? A tithe is by its very nature an act of worship. 
So God's people go all in on this one. Look at this in verse 35. They say, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. They go on. They say, we want to include the firstborn of our herds, of our flocks, the first of our dough, the first of our wine and oil. See, prioritizing relationships, that's one thing. We can do that. And prioritizing our time, like that's a, that's a good idea. That sounds like a self-help speech. Prioritizing our treasure. Now you're stepping on toes. But that is the true test of our faith. Y'all have to know the highlight for me of 2020, by far, hands down, was on Easter Sunday when every church in the country was scrambling to meet online. And the stock market was in a free fall and COVID created all this panic in the headlines. And somehow, as an elder-led church with an elder idea, Spring Hill brings $16,000 and hands it to our food bank. I'm not boasting in us. I'm boasting in God's use of the resources through us. Promises and priorities. This morning, I feel like God's word brings us this all-encompassing sort of holistic look at life. Think about it. Relationships, time, treasure. What else is there? I once heard it said, if it is a priority, we will find a way. And if it isn't, we'll find an excuse. So the question is really simple. What's the priority? Let's ask God to give us wisdom in answering that question with our actions this week. Will you pray with me? God, as we look to you, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, the, the, the creator and the sustainer of all that is, it is very clear what your priority is for us. Lord, that you love us in such a way that you would send your one and only son to die on the cross for us, to bear the weight of the entire world's sin, God, a payment that we could never give back. And yet, Lord, we hear your word ring true in our ears that all of us have fallen astray, every one of us, none of us is without sin, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So God, this morning as we do a heart check and we think about our relationships how we use our time that you've given us, how we use the treasures that have come by the work of the hands and the mind that you have blessed us with. God, we ask this morning, would you help us to reprioritize, Lord, to make a commitment to join Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites and the people in making our renewed covenant with you. Lord, to love in such a way that the world would know you by not only our words but our actions. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen.